Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by Madison Teamsters, Local 695, and the Operating Engineers, Local 139. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us. Uh, John, obviously, we've had a, a discussion about what has happened in Memphis this past week. I just want to start off by saying these must be the dumbest police officers ever. Did they not understand there was a camera on them? I think they had impu- they felt a sense of impunity, Sly. I think that that's one of the problems with these special units that get created. They literally, um, you know, believe, or maybe they don't believe it, but they just instinctually kind of fall into a mode where they think they can just do whatever, whatever they're sent out to do or whatever they think they're sent out to do. And it is shocking. I mean, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible that um, that someone would do that, knowing there was a camera on them, except, frankly, Sly, if you do it a lot, right? If, if they had been doing things like this, maybe not obviously as bad as this, but had just, you know, gotten, gotten comfortable with um, behaving in this grotesque way. Well, it, it, uh, it's, it's really remarkable. The police report, it, let, let me play a clip of this from MSNBC, or no, from, MS, from NBC. Here we go. Tonight, new questions about the disbanded Memphis Police Department's Scorpion Unit, whose officers violently beat Tyree Nichols. Nichols family attorney Ben Crump says there are more victims. There's a brother who said four or five days before this happened to Tyree, that same Scorpion Unit confronted him and he said that they used all kind of profanity against him. They uh, threw him on the ground and put a gun to his head. Five officers now charged with second-degree murder, with two others on administrative leave as investigations continue. Lawyers for two of the men charged say they will plead not guilty. All of these officers were under a duty to prevent the other officers from taking illegal actions that caused Tyree Nichols' death. This as first responders are also under fire. Two medical workers, Robert Long and Jamichael Sandridge, and one lieutenant, Michelle Whittaker, have been terminated. Officials writing their actions or inactions on the scene that night do not meet the expectations of the Memphis Fire Department. After an internal investigation, the department says Long and Sandridge failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Mr. Nichols. Video shows EMTs walking away from Nichols and leaving him as he rolls on the ground in distress. NBC News has not confirmed if these are the same EMTs who were terminated. All right. It, it seems to me this is worse than the George Floyd case with Derek Chauvin. You know, it, it's hard by to, to I, I, maybe I think. Well, I look at that. how big this net. I mean, the, the fact that oh, the, right. the, the first, the, the paramedics didn't intercede. No one did. You have, you have more layers of, wrongdoing here and more layers of failure here. I, I would accept that. Although I think when we start to make comparisons, what we, what we understand is that, that um, each of these are, are just these horrific incidents that again and again occur, right? And they occur in cities that are, you know, that you would imagine would have much more sophisticated police departments, uh, you know, public safety operations, EMTs, you know what I mean? 
These are not these are not places that you would imagine after all this time that that would not have you know people who understand a how to act in a humane and responsible way, b have protocols in order. And so, why would the one way I would say it is worse? Why? Is truly worse? Is that it occurred after George Floyd? Right. right. That's what makes it jaw-droppingly worse. That you know we had what happened with George Floyd. It was so absolutely jarring to the whole country, and and we had a moment where we thought we were going to actually have some progress. We didn't have as much as we should, but at the very least, in policing and in public safety, in in these areas beyond policing, uh, with the EMTs, with with the other folks, you would think. You know, of course, we would progress, right? The evidence here is uh, no evidence of progress. Which fact, you, you fact, can't, but you can, you know, but here's the thing. There there could be progress all over the country, but that's not getting any attention. That Well, there is progress. I mean, look, there's no question. There are uh, police departments that have, have improved. And frankly, the the one thing that's really important is there are cities that have figured out better how to do this, right? Well, sometimes under court order, look at Camden, New Jersey, would be an example, right? But Camden, and this is something something worth noting, Camden is a city that was for a very long time abandoned, right? It had, um, you know, a high level of impoverishment. It had a lot of deindustrialization. I mean, Camden was in a, a city that was in a very rough place, and they clearly did not, fund their policing, they did not keep up with their, you know, they didn't, they, they had a lot of problems there. Um, and of course the courts came in, but now we're seeing cities, you know, much bigger cities, right? That, that again, should have, should be far more advanced. And, and so there's clearly a problem. Uh, and what we, what we have to ask ourselves now is, um, how does this continue? We know there's structural racism. We know that there's a lot of other fundamental challenges in play. But, you know, you really would think that that just by pure logic, um, people who run police departments, people who manage public safety, would be looking for ways to, to get this right. And as I was saying, some cities have, where they have separated out policing from a lot of the baseline public safety stuff, you know, it's like you have separate units that go if there's a mental health issue versus a violence issue. They, many cities have restructured how they approach traffic stops and things of that nature. You know, I mean, there's, there are places that, that have really worked on this, and, and credit to them. But um, you just, I mean, I'm Here's, sorry, I here's what, I'm concerned about two things, better. right? So there's the, the other end of the equation is... Unfortunately, the number of officers being killed in the line of duty and being shot in violent circumstances is going back up again. And the other thing that's going back up again, and I see it in Milwaukee and Madison, officers getting arrested off duty for violent interactions, domestic disputes. Um, It's going up. And here's what I hear from law enforcement. The quality of recruits is going down, not up. And that's, 
and that is a huge challenge, right? I mean, this is well. Who wants to yeah. be? Who wants to be a cop? I mean, if you're a, a kind of a sensitive, uh, caring, maybe a little liberal, do you want to be a police officer? No, you don't. You don't want to do it anymore because there's a stigma attached to it, right? I think there is in many places. Oh, and I think there I, are good. After what happened in the summer of 2020 with the Derek Chauvin thing, you know. Can you imagine what that did to recruitment? I think it had an impact, but I look. I do talk. I talk to, to police officers who to good people who've gone into police, right? And um, and I think there's there look. The way to look at this is that all of these issues um, should be addressed in in some sort of whole way, rather than than separate them out, right? And you know, one of the one of the ways to do it is to um, reform policing in a lot of ways, and to make policing something that is more functional. Um, and you know, again, this is why if you look at, at cities like uh, um, you know, oh, I'm trying to think of a few that have been. I think San Francisco has worked on this to some extent, um, and I know that uh, um, uh, there have been cities in Oregon and other places where. They really have done a very good job of separating um, the police work, the core police work, from you know all of the the uh, mental health uh, and and sometimes very bureaucratic things that are done, and that has had some impact. Right, you have had, uh, you've had a, a situation where police officers have a much better defined role. And, and, you know, a, frankly, a more professionalized role. You know, it, but in, in some spots in America, we have sort of this urban psychosis where people are, they're basically, you know, there's gangs battling police officers. And uh, Hollywood was imitating this years ago, 30 years ago with, I, I think, it, what was the name of the movie? Was it Colors with Robert Duvall and Ryan Phillippe? They were, you know, talking about how police officers go into it with good intentions and then, it becomes a battle, and a bit, you know, there's complete mistrust, and it almost becomes like a war zone. And we can't put it, we can't sugarcoat it. There are some really dangerous, violent places because of poverty in America. And I don't know how you, I don't know how you make, I don't know how you make policing in really violent areas. Uh, how how you keep these these violent interactions between police and individuals? I don't know how you stop that. I've got a suggestion for you. And poverty? Yeah, <laughs> at least address it. Yes, I mean, and I, you know, I, I agree. That's a fundamental thing that 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 we have understood for a very very long time. I mean, Hubert Humphrey used to talk about this sixty years ago, and um, and. One of the biggest problems we've got is the same people who go on and on about crime, right? And it's, it's fair to be concerned about crime, right? But the same people who go on and on about crime, right, will not address poverty, will not address deindustrialization, will not address the abandonment of our cities. And so then you say to police officers, well, go, go fix this, right? Go, go make this work. And the fact is, that that this is where um, I think an awful lot of our conservative friends let down police officers. 
it, it kind of reminds me it kind of reminds me of the situation we were in in the Vietnam War where we sat you know in, in many cases police officers that uh, are patrolling our streets have come back from serving in the military they they don't have particularly great economic means in some cases they're not being paid very well at all and they're taught to fix problems that by the time they reach that officer it's boy it's pretty late in the game when you know when somebody's robbing banks and and you have gang violence well, or, and it's just but it's also it's overwhelming right yes it's, it's too much and again this is not to excuse police officers who engage in well this this was like right some out of something the out of the TV show the shield i mean this was just this was anarchy is what this was this was a so first a, and foremost and anarchy toward a guy who, by all accounts, is everything we've learned, you know, was... It, it, the anarchy wasn't on the part of the guy that got killed. No, 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 no. I talk, was, was talking about anarchy on, on on the police department's, you know, this unit, yeah. which has been uh, disbanded. All right, let's take a break, and then we can pick up with some other issues. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us at slysoffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works. Computers that work for you. We're back at SliceOffice.com, brought to you by Madison Computer Works and our friends at Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson. Uh, John, we have a Supreme Court race coming up, and you'd never know it by watching television. There's only one candidate on the air, and that's Janet Protasewicz. Uh, the two conservatives are not on the air other than some ads from Dick Uline for Dan Kelly running on radio. So here's what <laughs> Dan Kelly was on up front this past weekend. And for some reason, Matt Smith didn't call him out on possibly the worst string of lies I've ever heard from a Supreme Court candidate. Listen to this. You say that politics is poison to the court yes. in recent weeks and on this campaign trail. You've received endorsements from groups like Wisconsin Family Action, Wisconsin Right to Life, Pro-Life PAC Wisconsin. Would you deny to any of these groups that you're a political conservative as well? I would, uh, at least on the court, right? So my, so my political convictions are completely irrelevant to the work of the court. Now, that's in stark contrast to candidates like uh, Janet, uh, who say that her politics mean everything. And she's gone so far as to say that when, um, when laws in the Constitution conflict with her personal politics, she'll set aside the law 
in the Constitution, and she will institute her personal politics. That's what it means when she said that she would put her thumb on the scale when she's deciding cases. I think that is, she was saying he was putting his thumb on the scale. <laughs> it's just, she never said that. She, she never said, said that at all, and, and, and Matt Smith didn't correct him. I know, it was, I, I would agree with you, and that in a, in a race like this, which is so uh, important and yet so still low profile, um, that's something that, that you should be correcting. And, and, you know, look, here's the thing. The cynicism of the attack on, uh, you know, Janet Proceris, uh in this race, especially because they, they obviously fear her, and so they're, they're going after her. And they're trying to stake up some fantasy that when she has said she has values and she's willing to talk about them, um, they suddenly say, oh, well, she's saying how she'll decide cases. No, she is saying she has values. Well, let's, yeah, she was on on, uh, WHA, uh, the Here and Now program over the weekend. Here's what she did say. Issues, we pretty much know. So my position really is people who are just talking about the Constitution and the law. That's a personal choice of theirs, I suppose. On the other hand, they may not wish to share what their values or ideas are on some of the issues that are really, really important to voters. So when I talk to voters, I say, I can tell you what my values are. I can't tell you what I will do on any particular case, but I'll tell you what my values are. I'll tell you what I think is important. And that's really how I frame it when I talk to people, because obviously I have to follow the Constitution. Obviously, I have to follow the law. But people are very, very concerned about a wide variety of issues. They're concerned about women's right to choose. They're concerned about fair maps. They're concerned about community safety. They're concerned about clean water. They're concerned about marriage equality. So we talk about those issues in terms of what my values are. So how do your values then translate to decisions from the bench? Well, I still have to follow the Constitution. I have to follow the law. But I think we all know that there is a significant ability to interpret the laws. The stare decisis, what has come before us. There's significant things that can be interpreted in different ways. And you can tell that just based on how courts split on their decisions and how there can be a very well-reasoned opinion and a very well-reasoned dissent, right? So you can tell that there are, you know, well-thought-out decisions on both sides. But it's pretty clear to me, it's very, very clear to me, that women and men in this state are very, very concerned about a woman's right to choose very, very concerned about it. And so I tell them, you know, you should know my value. You should know my value. And my value is that bottom line is, you know, discuss the issue with your clergy, discuss it with your medical care provider, discuss it with your family or your significant other. But in the end, that decision is really your decision. All right. That's her response or not her response, but that's what she said. That's what he's twisting. Right. And it's also, look, this is one of the things that, that's unfair in this whole thing is that that Dan Kelly states his values all the time. Right. He's quite blunt about it um, and uh, and has has aligned himself politically with folks who are 
are very, very conservative. And as, as Judge Prosewitz said there, um, look, it is possible for someone to be, have a, a set of conservative values, have a set of liberal values, and to go at a case and, and still find ways to work within the law, right, to interpret the law. Um, what she is concerned about, obviously, is cases where um, conservative judicial activists go beyond the law, right, and, and essentially you know, create uh, new approaches to things that serve their serve the purpose their purposes and the purposes of their um, political constituents, and I think that's one of the big concerns about the state Supreme Court at this point is that when Dan Kelly was on it, and frankly in for a number of years now, this court has been um, seen and understood much more as an extension of the Republican Party, particularly as regards election issues, but also as regards a host of policy issues. What Judge Cordesanovich is suggesting is she would like it not to be such a partisan court, that she would like it to be a court that actually does operate on values that, and on, on ideas where there may be some differences. That's a message. Frankly, you know, I, I'll be quite blunt with you. If you just want to play those two clips against one another, I think most Wisconsinites would figure that out quite easily. And, so... And when Democrat, well, I shouldn't say Democrats, but uh, progressives candidates have been doing uh, relatively well in recent elections, with the exception of Lisa Neubauer in, I don't know what year was that? Was that 2019? 19. Yeah. Okay. She kind of ran a far more cautious, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to just be a justice and follow the Constitution sort of campaign. A lot of people feel that that left a lot of people uninspired. Well, and, and they, uh, the flip of that would have been Rebecca Dallas' campaign in 2018. And um, Jill Kurowski's campaign in 2020. Yeah, but I would say even more Dallas, um, where, you know, Dallas appeared at rallies and was, you know, quite, she was, Dallas was a very, very out front candidate. And um, look, here's people who are going to go on the Supreme Court are going to be different. They're going to have different styles, different approaches. My suggestion is that at the core, what you're looking for is somebody who may have some values that they state pretty clearly, but, but are not clearly partisan. And, and I, I'll give you an example of this slide. This gets us into the, the case of Judge Justice Hagedorn, who sits on the court. Hagedorn is the justice who beat uh, J- Judge Neubauer back in 2019. Hagedorn was elected as somebody who was expected to be, uh, you know, kind of a lockstep conservative. He had worked for former Governor Scott Walker, et cetera. Scott Walker. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Hagedorn gets on the court, and um, and he is clearly a conservative. And I think you're, on social issues, to the extent that those come up, you're going to see a lot of that. And yet, um, I think there's pretty good evidence that he's not a partisan. Well, he's not all. And further, if, further along in the interview, Kelly said that he has a difference with Hagedorn. He doesn't think that Hagedorn's truly being conservative. He thinks his judicial philosophy is the conservative philosophy. Well, see, no, I think that's wrong. I think Hagedorn is actually, whether you call it conservative or not, I think Hagedorn is actually being a judge. Yes, he is. And, uh, you know and I mean? in some ways, in some ways, Kelly is running a campaign 
against Justice Hagedorn in, in the primary. Yeah. He's saying, I'm the known entity. You, you know how I'm going to vote. You can't trust Darrow because you don't know how she's going to vote. That is, the, that is his campaign. And, his, and the ads that his backers are putting up, and I know these aren't coming out of Kelly's campaign per se, but they're coming up out of his core backers, the, the, the Illinois-based new line, um, uh, are stunningly blunt about that, right? I mean, and, and I think this is the thing to understand. It is very, very clear that uh, just, former Justice Kelly has attracted the support of people who believe that he will serve on that court as a partisan, as a rather rigid partisan. And, and so this makes it a, a very interesting dynamic. And in this four-candidate race, um, it's clear that Kelly's, uh, you know, no matter what he may say in an interview, what is what the campaigning on his behalf is saying is that he is the most rigid, uh, most rigid conservative, most likely to align with the Wisconsin uh, Republican legislators. And it's interesting that I go around the state quite a bit, and I was just down in Walworth County yesterday, and I was good. I should take. I was going to take a picture of it and send it to you. You know, um, the big, you know, kind of the huge yard sign, right? Not a, not a standard yard sign you put in your yard, but really a the wooden ones that are about, like, six by eight, uh-huh. right? Are I know them well, John. <laughs> I they're up in Walworth County, traditionally rather Republican County, uh, for Dan Kelly. And, boy, you know, it's going to surprise you. They are right where the Ron Johnson signs were uh, last fall. Isn't, isn't that something? Uh, I thought you would enjoy hearing this clip of the senior senator from South Carolina, talking about the upcoming presidential election. We need to get ready for a real spirited contest. Now, why Trump? Now, you mentioned like DeSantis. If you try to tell me that Ron DeSantis is not a good governor in Florida, I'm not going to listen to you. If you try to tell me Mike Pompeo is not qualified to be president, I'm not going to listen to you because I think he is. I am for Trump, not because of the flaws of anybody else. I'm for Donald Trump because I know what I'm going to get. We need somebody that on day one can get this country back on track, that can secure our border and bring order out of chaos. Somebody the Russians and the Chinese fear. Somebody that can take the fight to the terrorist. The Abraham Accords, the result of Donald Trump impressing the Arabs and the Israelis. He is the best solution to the problems we face, not because of the flaws of others, but because what I know he can do. And I'm telling your listeners right now, when you hear, I like Trump uh, policies, but I'm ready for somebody new, there are no Trump policies without Donald Trump. <laughs> you know... <laughs> can I make it Russia fears Donald Trump? In what world is he? <laughs> I realize, I realize that, that if you listen to the words, it's going to be problematic. Uh, but, but can I say something about Lindsey Graham? Uh, in the context of the Republican primaries, he probably, that statement is probably the strongest, best argument for Donald Trump. Well, it takes a lot of twists and convoluted logic to get to that point. <laughs> I, but, but you see, slide, here's my... I know, I know, I know. You, 
<laughs> so here, here is Mike Barnacle. Here's Mike Barnacle's response. Graham ever sat down with a shrink for 15 minutes. Oh. A shrink would put him in handcuffs and keep him there for 15 years. I mean, he has such a phobia about strong men. Yeah. You know, John McCain attaching himself to John McCain when he was alive, and now attaching himself for life, apparently, to Donald Trump. He is a sad man. That's a, that's a rough, rough one. I, I like that. I, I, I enjoyed that very much. I know you did. But let me, let me just, again, I'm going to circle around because this is something, it's been one of the things. So I've you're saying about. you're siding with Lindsey Graham. I'm siding with Lindsey Graham here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not because I agree with him, but because I, I watch politics, right? And I, my question is, you know, I, I, this question I get asked all the time. How could Republicans possibly consider Donald Trump at a point when he is facing all these legal problems, at a point when, you know, he's presided over three um, failed cycles for the Republicans, 2018, 2020, 2022, where they didn't do as well as they thought they would. Um, you know, and all the other flaws of Trump, why, how can positive Republicans possibly consider him? Well, if you listen to Graham, you, you basically hear the distillation of the argument. And frankly, this is the big question going forward. Can Trump deliver that argument as well as Graham just did? Because if Trump does, and if Trump's backers do, then he's going to be the Republican nominee. And frankly, to be blunt with you, um, I think that's probably good for Joe Biden. Here is uh, his future running mate, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, they were debating, uh, I don't know if it was the House Oversight Committee. They were, they were kind of organizing the next set of committees in Congress. And this was in response to the police shooting in Memphis with a, a new African-American member of Congress. I can't remember what state she was from. She wanted, to, she wanted to keep an oversight committee on law enforcement. Here's what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. I do agree with you about Tyree Nichols' death. I watched the video, and it was tragic and, and extremely difficult to watch. I would also like to point out that that city is Democrat-controlled, and the five officers that have been arrested and charged are black. And I think that this isn't, isn't an issue of uh, racism or anything like that. I think, I think that the judge and the, the jury and the trial needs to work out what happened there, but I share that with you. But I'd like to also point something that I'd hope you share with me. There's a woman in this room whose daughter was murdered on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt. And Ashley Babbitt has, there's never been a trial. As a matter of fact, no one has cared about the person that shot and killed her. And, and no one in this Congress has really addressed that issue. January 6th committee didn't address it. And I believe that there are many people uh, that came into the Capitol on January 6th, whose civil rights and liberties are being violated heavily. At the Ashley Babbitt, of course, was the former soldier who was trying to smash the door of Congress with a, a, a crazed mob when essentially law enforcement was almost losing control of protecting the members in that beautiful building. Uh, it, this is really going to be a treat to watch her over the next couple of years. What a remarkable woman. Look, I'll go back to the first part of what she said there, you know, where she was trying to, um, you know, claim that, that 
racism wasn't a factor here. And, um, and the fact of the matter is that, that if we look at what happened in Memphis, I think you have to recognize realities of structural racism that go back for a very, very long time, you know, deeply rooted, and that, that have to be addressed by society. And there are people in Congress who have tried to address those issues, and they've been, you know, often attacked and dismissed and diminished. Um, and uh, I think that, that what you're getting with, uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, frankly, a lot of the rest of, of the Republican caucus in Congress is a desire to, you know, kind of uh, quickly compartmentalize what happened in Memphis as they have so many other issues so that they can then talk about something else, right? And, and at some fundamental level, uh, Congress needs to talk about some of these issues in a deeper way. And I, if I can point out that, you know, Tim Scott, the very conservative uh, senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham's uh, fellow senator, um, has worked with uh, Cory Booker. They haven't gotten to the, they haven't found common ground, but they have tried um, to deal with some of these policing issues and some of the broader issues. Uh, and, and so it, it is really at this point, Sly, we're, in a, we're watching a wrestling match for the Republican Party's soul, right? And the Republican Party is going to be a conservative party. There's no question of that. It's, it has jettisoned its moderates and even its moderate conservatives. It's going to be a very conservative party. But the question is whether it is a party that can look at the, the realities of what's going on and seek to dismiss them and compartmentalize them and not deal with them, or whether it might actually try to deal with them. And frankly, you know, that's what the, the 2024 presidential race is going to be about on the Republican side. And there's going to be a lot of candidates. It looks like it's going to be a crowded race. And um, I know there's a tendency to dismiss all Republicans, to say, oh, they're all bad players, right? Um, I think one of our responsibilities is to, to listen to what people are saying in that race and to see who might be actually saying, look, you know, I, wanna, I want to govern in a conservative way, but I also want to govern in a rational way and in a, in a way that, that recognizes reality. And well, um, that's going to be... May, I, may I suggest funny. as long as Fox and Newsmax and all these organizations are profiting from angertainment, it, it, it's very hard for someone to get traction uh, on being rational. You may remember when Congressman Rogers left the House, you know, relatively conservative congressman from Michigan, and he was going to do a rational Republican talk show. Well, John, that didn't work out. No, I, look, you're right about this entertainment. You're right. You know, look, the, the whole kind of industry of misinformation and disinformation and, and smear and slur and all, you know, whatever. I mean, I know that's a part of it. Um, but still, I, I, I'm intrigued by what people who I'm pretty sure know better um, and who are likely to run. You know, people like Nikki Haley, who, by the way, called Trump out, um, you know, how they're going to handle this. So uh, let me ask you this before we're done. Uh, We're almost done. I have noticed some of the 
most vituperative Republicans are now going on MSNBC. Matt Gates yeah, went, MS, went on MSNBC. Uh, Lauren Boebert went on, on MSNBC. What are they up to? What is this new tactic going on the the, the Blue Network uh, uh-huh. for a for a forum? I mean, I'm glad MSNBC is putting them on. A lot of people don't like it. I'm I think they should be on. I, I think I I give. Ari Melber and some of his cohorts credit for putting them on. Ari has always done that. But what do you think these people are up to by using that network to get some press? Well, look, you know, I've appeared on Tucker Carlson's show. So, you know, and I think you've appeared on Fox. Oh, uh, I have. I was on Bill O'Reilly I, a couple times. And John Kasich I, I, used to have a TV show on Fox. Yeah. But I've appeared, you know, on Fox with Tucker Carlson and had good conversations. Not we didn't necessarily agree, but 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 good conversations over the years. Not sure that would happen now, but but you know, um, uh, but what I can tell you is that people there there is a tendency on the part of people uh, who are, have strong views to believe they can go and and you know appear with folks who disagree with them and maybe actually have a a, a chance to state those views and 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 get a platform right and get attention for it. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. I, I watched the conversation between Ari Melber and Matt Gates, right? And, you know, it was combative, right? Uh, Ari Melber asked tough questions, and Gates came back with his uh, point of view. But actually, it was, you know, it was a fair conversation. Well, it was actually, it was actually interesting, which is... Right, right. All right, we got to wrap things up. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be with you. Sliceoffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye bye.